The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Overcoming Challenges in the Recognition and Management of Adult ADHD in Primary Care, Optimizing Outcomes to Reduce Disease Burden and Improve Quality of Life, with Dr. Leonard Adler from NYU Grossman School of Medicine in New York and Dr. Oren Mason from Attention MD in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash CQC860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Leonard Adler, professor and director of the Adult ADHD program in the Department of Psychiatry at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. And I'm here today with my colleague and friend, Dr. Oren Mason, who's founder and director of Attention MD in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The National Comorbidity Survey Reexamine, which was a community-based survey uh, that we did with Ronald Kessler at the Harvard School of Public Health, showed that between 4 and 5% of the adults in the U.S. Um, have adult ADHD. That means that the prevalence, um, the actual numbers are between 8 and 9 million adults. In terms of the type of presentation, the most common presentation is the combined presentation at 70%, meaning that individuals will have meet the significant symptom criteria for both inattention and hyperactivity impulsivity. The primarily inattentive comes next at around 25% and the primarily hyperactive impulsive less than 5%. That's an important difference than with kids where there is a higher loading of the hyperactive impulsive symptoms. Male to female ratio is, is um, higher in kids to adults. It's two to one, four to one in kids. Um, in part because of the uh, increased loading of the hyperactive impulsive symptoms in men, it's actually closer to one-to-one in adults. And actually, in our ADHD program, we are exactly at that one-to-one split. Um, Oren, I don't know what you've seen, but I, I presume it's quite similar for you. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, uh, the number of women presenting as adults for ADHD slightly exceeds men in, in my practice, but it's close to one-to-one. Right. And actually, it's because females are overrepresented in the inattentive subtype. Um, they tend to present more commonly um, in adulthood as compared to, to men, in part because if you are behaviorally disruptive in childhood, you're more likely to uh, come to the attention, medical attention. And for women, because they carry a higher loading of the inattentive symptoms, that means they're more likely to present in adulthood. Um, the persistence rates are quite high for ADHD, meaning that Anywhere from 60 now to a more recent study, 90% of patients diagnosed in childhood continue to uh, show significant symptoms into adulthood. But it's important to remember that um, most adults, three quarters of them with active ADHD are actually not diagnosed in childhood. So there can be adult presentation of ADHD, but um, as an adult, but really the roots of the symptoms go back to childhood, but most adults are actually not diagnosed in childhood. Um, They come in not having been diagnosed. And only the NCSR study showed that only one in 10 adults uh, were actively treated who had ADHD. So uh, ADHD is a highly heritable condition. The estimates are between 70 to 80%, meaning it tends to run in families. And the familiality noted by Ferran Biederman is around 90%. There are a number of environmental risk factors that include premature birth, um, low birth weight, um, prenatal um, tobacco exposure, lead exposure, and low social economic SES. Um, but again, we want you to think that think about the heritability here because that's really critical. So um, there are a number of psychiatric and behavioral correlates of ADHD, and there's an increased risk for a number of different uh, conditions, including anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, suicidal ideation, um, smoking, marijuana use, alcohol abuse, auto accidents, um, incarceration, and unemployment. Uh, we're going to run through some data on comorbidities, which are co-occurring conditions with ADHD. The important thing here is that you'll see that in the community-based surveys and then in the referred sample at, from MGH, the same disorders come up with high levels of comorbidity. Um, so adults with ADHD in the NCSR community survey, higher rates of mood disorders, major depression, dysthymia, bipolar disorder, anxiety disorders, substance use disorders, um, very common and high rates. This is data from the MGH group um, looking at comorbidities and referred uh, samples, finding similar findings um, in terms of ADHD versus controls in both men and women. 
So it's important when evaluating an adult with ADHD to look for comorbidities because they are more often there than they're not there. And also, if you have individuals with these other comorbidities, it's important, especially if they're not getting better, it's important to assess them for ADHD. Oren? I think the uh, what, what one of the trends in psychiatric practice is to is a comb uh, through patient rosters for uh, depressed patients and and anxious patients uh, who are responding only partially or or who are considered treatment resistant. Uh, that's an important group to screen for ADHD. Um, but one of the things that that's different in mental health care than from our typical general medical care is that in general medical care, we always look for one explanation for what's going on. But in mental health care, we often have to look through um, when the, the presence of one disorder increases the likelihood of the presence of more disorders. And there's some patients who are especially heavily burdened by a number of co-occurring disorders, uh, for example, ADHD and uh, depression and personality disorder. And so stopping with a single diagnosis uh, and failing to recognize the complexity of many of these cases is a, is, a, is a disservice and may help us, may prevent us from helping our patients appropriately. I think that's true. I think we have to look for ADHD and these other disorders. So um, there are a number of burdens of untreated ADHD with um, individuals with untreated ADHD having lower quality of life, marital success, college graduations, full-term, full-time employment and income. And actually, um, some of the uh, Scandinavian registry studies have shown increased mortality risk um, for ADHD that is somewhat mitigated with treatment. And there are substantial cost issues here. Um, comparing the societal cost for heart disease and diabetes, uh, for ADHD of all ages, the costs are higher or quite similar. So this is a disorder that has substantial impairments, substantial cost to society, um, and missing it has real consequences, Warren. Right, and I think there, 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 there's a point maybe hidden here, and, and that's that the medical costs of ADHD may be low for lack of attention to the disorder at all levels, at the primary care psychiatric level. Our network for treating isn't as robust as it needs to be. The availability of uh, counseling and coaching supports and so is inadequate still. And the fact that for relatively small medical costs, we are able to see changes in outcomes is encouraging, but I think it's only the beginning of the story and just an encouragement to be more vigorous about uh, treating both symptoms and, and with, with attention to functional outcomes. I think that's true. And in fact, even though this data um, is, some of it is about a decade old, we do have a paper coming out that um, has updated this and the, the cost societally of ADH, adult ADHD far, are, far, are far greater than just a medical cost. That's a small piece of the pie. Okay, so there are, um, in DSM-5, there are nine inattentive and nine hyperactive impulsive symptoms. Um, adulthood starts at the age of 17 um, in the DSM. A change from DSM-4 to DSM-5 was the threshold was set at uh, five in DSM-5 and it was six in DSM-4. So in terms of making the diagnosis, many symptoms have been attributed to ADHD, but there are 18 core symptoms and it's important to know them. You begin with the core symptom, evaluation, five of nine inattentive and or five of nine hyperactive impulsive. If you meet just the inattentive symptom threshold and meet the other criteria, um, then you're in the inattentive presentation. The most common is when both the inattentive and the hyperactive symptom threshold is met and then you're combined. And if it's just the hyperactive impulsive, it is the hyperactive impulsive presentation. Um, the, you wanna evaluate symptom frequency um, and symptom severity. Some infrequently occurring symptoms can still be quite impairing and significant. If you interrupt your boss in a presentation or you don't pay attention when you're driving, even if it doesn't happen all that often, that can have real consequences. When you examine symptom severity for impairment, you also wanna be sure, look where the symptoms are happening in two or more settings 
And the impairment piece is showing that the symptoms interfere uh, with or reduce the quality of um, social school social school work um, or um, so it's at, or family functioning. So it's at home, school work, or social or social functioning. In terms of duration, um, you want to look longitudinally, see that the roots of the disorder are in childhood. There has to be multidimensional symptom presentation significantly in childhood, meaning more than one symptom in more than one setting. And the onset has to be 12 or less. So that was a change from DSM-4 moving um, from 7 to 12. You're doing this historically, so you really want to have the individual stay in childhood and get collaterals if possible, spousal partners or parents, older sibs, and look historically at grade reports, teacher comments, or prior evaluations. Executive function deficits are actually quite common, and they include difficulties in response inhibition, trouble with nonverbal working memory, verbal working memory, regulation of emotion and motivation, planning and problem-solving trouble. So these are not part of the DSM, but we want you to be able to recognize them because they can lead to significant impairment, and they occur over half the time, as you'll see, in adults with ADHD. Oren? And it's, it's, it's a little bit confusing, and, and I, I wonder if you could explain the difference between the symptoms, because it, it seems like there's some uh, cross-pollination here. So impulsive responding, for example, is both a symptom and an executive function deficit. Is this an expansion of core symptoms? Should we think of it that way? It, it is an expansion of core symptoms, but they are co-traveling symptom sets. I think the, the executive function deficits, the um, difficulty with emotional discontrol, um, they are um, co-traveling symptoms that commonly occur with ADHD. Um, the issues with time management, keeping things in mind, working memory, the RAM of our brains, that is part, those are part of executive function deficits. And the introduction of emotional dysregulation as key concepts is new. Um, you know, the, the, the focus on inattention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity doesn't really address the emotional domain. And we consider ADHD cognitive, but yet this is a, an emotional symptom set. Do you think it's fair to think of it as emotional self-control more than actual excesses of uh, depressive symptoms or anxious systems? It's not a formal depression or anxiety disorder. It is a changeable mood. Um, it's like weather and climate. Um, it's changeable within the day, um, often in reaction to stimuli, whereas formal mood disorders um, will um, not be so dependent um, on external stimuli and will be more persistent. The take-home point here is that these um, co-occurring symptoms of executive dysfunction are equally as common as the inattentive symptoms and see that the inattentive symptoms are 50% more common than the hyperactive impulsive symptoms and the emotional discontrol symptoms on the far right um, are um, almost as common as the hyperactive impulsive. So you need to look for these symptoms because they exist commonly in adults with ADHD and the, they tend not to be as medication responsive. The response rates um, are somewhat less the magnitude of the response and the emotional um, discontrol symptoms actually tend to be the only of these co-traveling symptoms that are not significantly medication responsive in some of the studies. A patient in my practice was willing to talk about uh, the experience of identifying her own ADHD coming for diagnosis and her experience with first treatment. And I think because she's articulate and explains well that this may be helpful to uh, see and understand the patient side of what we've been talking about. Growing up, I didn't think I had ADHD. Uh, I was really used to, for other kids who were in class with me, it, I kind of had this idea that you had to be really hyperactive and that that was like the main way that you could tell. But I always struggled with like keeping my desk organized and I could tell that I more easily could uh, express emotion than maybe other people in our classroom. Uh, but I, you know, never really thought anything of it. And then as I was getting older and was out of college working, one of my first uh, real jobs and uh, was working a full-time job. And then I was going to grad school too. And my grad school was online um, without any kind of like people interaction, really. I was starting to really struggle with that. And I had always done okay in school. Uh, and to see that I was struggling so much really got me worried and I couldn't figure out really why it was such a struggle. And my partner at the time had mentioned, you know, 
have you ever thought that maybe you might have ADD or ADHD? I was like, no, not really. But we decided to look online and there was a pretty long uh, online test that you could take that to just see if there was any indicators. And when I took that, it said, you know, you very well could. And so that's when I started looking for uh, a specialist or seeing if my own doctor had the option to get tested to just see. Because I just thought, well, you know, maybe that would help explain some things on why I've noticed that I kind of act a little differently or have trouble with things that seem really easy with like basic organizational tasks or keeping my house clean, those kind of like little things that I noticed were seemed a lot harder and that I had a lot more anxiety around than uh, my friends and family. One thing that my doctor mentioned that was really helpful to hear was that sometimes ADHD is harder to diagnose in girls and presents differently in girls and that or women. Um, And that was really helpful because I think kind of my picture, what I thought versus my own lived experience didn't quite line up. And once I started being able to understand that and then actually research it on my own to be able to go online and see how other people um, had experienced that it actually just having the diagnosis changed my life a ton, Um, being able to finally understand how my brain worked differently and that it actually did work differently than other people's, um, that I was a little bit different, uh, actually helped relieve so much anxiety around why some of those tasks are harder for me, but why certain other aspects of my personality came a lot easier um, to me as well. Katie mentioned that women are sometimes missed, girls are sometimes missed for a variety of reasons. Part of that may be the idea that we have of what ADHD should look like. And there's many girls, teen, teenagers and young women who don't fit that picture. They may have restlessness, not overt hyperactivity. They may be diagnosed or in some cases misdiagnosed with anxiety or mood disorders. They may have restlessness that doesn't appear overtly as hyperactivity. And so somebody like Katie, who grows up thinking that the hyperactive kids have ADHD and she doesn't, is probably the norm in adult, uh, an adult woman presenting for uh, diagnosis. There's also a, a, a notion of some successes, some difficulties, not, not, not a tragic story of continuous uh, difficulty. And so it's hard to know that the difficulties are actually impairments of ADD in many cases. It still remains the case, though, that women are less often referred for ADHD assessment. And again, Katie had to self-identify and self-refer, as many women do right now. We'd like to be able to improve on that. We'd like to be able to identify and uh, begin diagnosis on more women with ADHD to meet the burden of underdiagnosis that may exist in our practices now. Well, the diagnosis of ADHD is done like. because it's complex and because it's multifaceted, begins with standard diagnostic scales. Dr. Adler talked about the 18 core symptoms of ADHD, and the diagnostic scales represented here all query patients on those 18 core symptoms. Some, like the Connors, include more. The diagnostic interview for ADHD in adults is extensive. And it's meant for a physician to interview a patient rather than a paper form. But these are some examples of relatively straightforward ADHD diagnostic scales. There are a number of adult ADHD rating scales that are very helpful in diagnosis. They're used in addition to an interview, not in place of an interview, but all are meant to give scores that would be indicative or or discouraging the diagnosis of ADHD. Prior to the use of those, though, is a relatively new area that we would consider screening. Because the ADHD workup is extensive, identifying people most in need of of that workup is augmented by a screen. And I think this is familiar to all uh, primary care providers. When we select the people that we want to screen, and I'll show you an example of a of a well-prepared screen in just a minute, we need to select the patients that might have a high probability of ADHD within our practice. That requires that we be vigilant. We've talked about a lot of impairments of ADHD. So 
people with substance use disorders, with treatment-resistant anxiety, with treatment-resistant depression, may have ADHD and should be considered for screening. We, we, we also have characteristics of ADHD that we see and wonder about ADHD, including patients who are late for appointments, who have financial difficulties, who have relationship breakdowns. There's many points at which we might suspect ADHD. And if there's a simple and cost-efficient screen, then we can determine whether the likelihood of ADHD is high enough that these indicators would prompt us to refer for a full evaluation or to schedule for a full evaluation. Warren, I think that's a, a key point that, um, and you know, in terms of screening, um, is to identify individuals at high risk who then can go on to get a diagnostic workup. Um, but there are still individuals that even if they screen negative, if the index of suspicion is high, you don't want it to stop. Um, because you, if you think they might have ADHD, it's important to keep looking. Well, and Len, you're the one who developed this next uh, screener that I'm going to show. Um, and it was designed with that exactly in mind. And the screener shown here can be done on paper. It can also be done online. And with six questions, a positive screen indicates a very high likelihood of ADHD. In general, over 70% over of the people who screen positive are going to have ADHD. And some of the folks who screen positive will also have uh, other disorders mimicking ADHD that need identification. And so up to 90% of people who screen positive need diagnosis and intervention. These six questions are answered on a scale never, rarely, sometimes, often, or very often. And the scoring algorithm is available online. It's complicated enough that we won't go through it today, but it's simple to apply in practice. Now, in the case of a positive screen, we want to proceed to diagnosis. The DSM screener is then followed by the symptom checklist. It's a self-report form that has all 18 core symptoms, the nine inattentive and the nine hyperactive impulsive. And they correlate to the DSM symptomatology. They're used as a symptom inventory because again, we're looking for five of nine inattentive or five of nine hyperactive impulsive symptoms to make the diagnosis of ADHD. So this can be used at a baseline diagnostic visit as well as at a follow-up to assess treatment response. And here we see the form that a patient would see. Patients would not have the shaded areas, but we see the shaded areas here just to identify when making a symptom count, when sometimes answer falls in the shaded region, then we would consider that a positive symptom. So symptom number four, when you have a task that requires a lot of thought, how often do you avoid uh, or delay getting started? If somebody answered sometimes, then we wouldn't consider that a positive uh, symptom in our symptom count. If they answered often, then we would say, yes, this is a symptom that's uh, occurring at a clinical level, and we'll add this to our count of the inattentive ADD symptoms. So by totaling the symptom responses in this form, we can see how many clinical symptoms there are in both the inattentive and the hyperactive impulsive domains. Assessing functional impairments is not nearly as well specified in the DSM. When we diagnose ADHD, we don't just ask about the presence of symptoms, but we want to know what problems those cause. Dr. Adler, you mentioned that uh, we may find problems in areas of work, in family life, in social life, or in school settings. The available tools for ranking functional impairments are much less robust than what we have available for symptoms. Margaret Weiss has developed the functional impairment rating scales, and she makes these available with a simple request. Um, she, she asks that people uh, seek her permission to use those. And we'll show an example of those coming up. And Dr. Bartley has also developed some quali quali or a functional impairment rating scale, and it's available to purchasers of a manual for its use. And that's relatively cost-effective too. These are, helpful ways for busy 
primary care docs to assess functional impairments prior to a diagnostic visit so that a patient can be prompted at a number of things that might be impairments related to symptoms that he or she might not have connected. And so it's actually a time saver to use these. Um, very helpful in both identifying ADHD and following it up. Do you find these helpful yourself, uh, Dr. Adler? I, I do. The Barclay Functional Impairment Scale um, is one that um, I use um, quite often. It, it surveys 15 different domains of impairment. So there's a, an interview that you can do. And then um, the, um, the actual uh, form is filled out and there are cuts on what is a significant um, impairment at different levels. And the total score then can be calculated to um, indicate um, if the individual is functionally impaired. This has been normed in um, over a thousand um, community-based adults. So it's got a very good validation and it's quite helpful actually, um, in documenting impairment, which can be, um, a little bit, uh, tougher to do because impairment can sometimes be relative and underperformance. In, in my own practice, we've used primarily the Weiss functional scales, and this is a portion of the Weiss scales. And again, you see that there's just a number of questions or prompts for a number of family functions and work functions in this example that may be impaired due to ADHD symptoms. Now that this form doesn't question the relationship, but it's, but it's a good tool for trying to assess the connection of clinical ADHD symptoms with, uh, these impairments. And very often, uh, I think they do connect and fairly directly, but that's important to establish in the history. I'd like to speak practically about how you do this in a busy primary care office. I think it can be done in, an, in an, a total of an hour in many cases. Depending on how you schedule, you may want to do that as two 30-minute visits. Ideally, those would be scheduled close together, maybe on consecutive days. If 60-minute visits are possible and are doable in your clinic, that may be preferable. Importantly, though, preparation prior to the visit makes the time more efficient. Structured questionnaires should be completed prior to the appointment. At a very minimum, I would think about at least doing one core symptom checklist, such as the ASRS, and one functional impairment rating scale, such as uh, the Weiss scales, affectionately called the woofers. I don't think I have to go over screeners for anxiety, depression, mood disorder, and SUD because these are so commonly used in primary care that you're probably familiar with some. In the course of a diagnostic office visit for identifying ADHD, the process then becomes one of first reviewing the patient's symptoms. And then we'll get an idea of frequency from the, from the preparation work they've done. But, a, but an important component of this is to establish the time course of those symptoms. Many ADHD symptoms should be present prior to the age of 14. Now, this depends on recall, and recall of ADHD symptoms may be uh, difficult. We don't have to repeat the whole uh, diagnostic interview from age 10 or from age 15, but we do need to know that there is a continuity and that, and that the ADHD symptoms, the forgetfulness, the inattention, the restlessness, had um, appearances in, in many circumstances in many uh, situations over uh, many uh, points of a person's life. For example, they might remember being restless in school and not sitting well for meals. But we don't have to do the whole diagnostic process as children just to know that many of our symptoms are longitudinal. We also want to make sure that they're not relatively recent in parents because ADHD is considered a developmental issue where there's other episodic disorders that we're also considering in the differential. We'll review the patient's impairments. Now, those don't have to be longitudinal. Those may come and go. And so somebody might be disorganized in a work setting, less so at home if their spouse can take over the organization. And so they might not feel as disorganized in one setting as they do in another. 
but impairments due to the symptoms should be present at many stages. In the second half of a diagnostic visit, we need to establish the diagnosis with a patient. So if they have at least six of nine, or in adults, five of nine core symptoms in either the inattentive or the hyperactive impulsive domains and functional impairments and a longitudinal history of these symptoms, then we can with some confidence uh, say that they have ADHD, either the inattentive, the combined, or the hyperactive forms. We need to do a cardiovascular baseline screening, which would be similar to the cardiovascular screening that you would do uh, for a sports physical, for example, a uh, history of uh, fainting, loss of consciousness, whether uh, exercise-related or not. Disease state education, explaining that ADHD is a disorder that's typically developmental, present from a young age, that's not anybody's fault, that, um, that it tends to be uh, lifelong in the majority of patients, and that treatments are uh, highly effective is very important. Next, we need to define patients' therapeutic goals because they might not be the same as ours. So what three changes you would like to see as a typical uh, pro for that? And then we begin initiating the therapy. If people are comfortable, we offer a, a medication trial of therapy. Now, this isn't done to see if they have ADHD. This is done because they have ADHD. If they fail the trial, that doesn't mean they have ADHD. It means they're in the smaller subset of all of our typical medications that don't respond to that medication. And rather than imputing anything about the diagnosis, we would say, well, that's a failure of this medication. We would go on to a second trial. So the trial of therapy is done to see if the medication is sufficient to the task. We may uh, prescribe some psychosocial supports, especially if you have uh, available uh, in your area uh, psychologists who will do CBT for ADHD or ADHD coaches. Uh, they can be very helpful in helping patients understand and grasp the diagnosis and what needs to be done. Accommodations often come up, it's difficult to evaluate them, but uh, if uh, there's particularly difficult school or work situations, the need for accommodations should be addressed as well. And then we schedule a follow-up. In general, I would want to see a, a newly diagnosed patient with ADHD monthly, and that's the expectation that I would set, that we'll probably see each other monthly for three to six months, and then quarterly thereafter, depending, of course, on the treatment response. Of course, at this visit, we're gonna assess a differential diagnosis, but I don't think the time frame lets us get into all of these. We'll discuss some changes in the therapy that we might want to make based on the presence of comorbid anxiety, mood disorder, and so forth. But in general, we, if there's serious secondary comorbidities, we may need to schedule another visit to address those individually. There's many patients who come to my practice, and this is anecdotal, but who are told that they couldn't have ADD because they don't fit the type, or they couldn't have ADD because their symptoms are from anxiety or from depression, or because nobody in their family has it. The broad diagnostic information gathering that we do for an ADHD visit doesn't at any point rule out ADHD. We need to really ask all the questions, gather all the data, and then take a look at all of it. And so the fact that somebody doesn't seem like they have ADD because they have a quiet, shy personality can't be an anchoring point. They still deserve a full evaluation. I would urge you not to try to rule out ADD because a typical characteristic isn't present. Of course, some patients are too complicated. Even though I do a lot of ADHD diagnosis every day in my practice, I'm still very careful to refer patients with complicated comorbidities such as active bipolar, um, ongoing substance use disorder, or maybe some really severe major depressions to a psychiatric setting. This will differ based on your local circumstances, but some problems need to be addressed before ADHD. And so serious mood disorders, thought disorders, if there's any question of um, schizophrenia or, or 
schizotypal uh, disorders, it's probably best to refer to a psychiatric colleague. And here I would apply the rule that the most impairing disorder should be treated first. And certainly if that's bipolar disorder, active substance use that has to be brought under the treatment umbrella, or a serious major depression, ADHD, although quite impairing, is lifelong. And those other disorders uh, can be life-threatening. So when I began medication, uh, we started with a pretty low dose of a stimulant. And it was really to just try and understand kind of how much may I need slash is am I going to actually be responsive to that? So I think we started and I didn't really notice any kind of impact. And then we upped the dosage a little bit. And there was this moment that probably sounds kind of silly, but to me was kind of like changing where I just loaded the dishwasher because I wanted to love the dishwasher. And I started crying, actually, because it, I took the second to realize, like, I didn't think about this all day. I didn't. I, I wanted to do this and then I just did it and there wasn't an emotion tied to it. There wasn't any kind of urgency around the dishes having to be put away. I just had this test that has seemed so easy to so many of my peers and to my partner my whole life that now I can do. Um, and I remember going and talking to my doctor, kind of sharing that story of like, I think something changed. <laughs> um, and that was one of like a small instance of starting to really understand how medication could actually help me be able to do some of those tasks um, that I had kind of been either procrastinating or that I had a lot of anxiety around in my daily life. That's another aspect that I think changed once I started having medication too, is I could finally forgive myself for not being perfect and for not maybe doing things the right way. And like, then I could remind myself, like, you can try again and that's okay. Or let's try and think of a different motivation for what might I am more naturally, like what might more naturally help motivate me to do this task or whatever. Um, just all of that, being able to finally understand that. I, on the test that I was given, um, it asked about like depression and anxiety. And once I'd been on medication, that actually reduced. And I haven't experienced that to the level I was before since being on medication, which I was not anticipating at all. And even when we were first doing the medication, he's like, well, maybe you have seasonal depression, something like that. But I really do think it was related to one, a diagnosis, but also potentially just the, the medication too. It's always germane to ask, what's the treatment outcome that we expect? ADHD is unique in all the disorders that typically come to a primary care office in that patients typically don't know exactly what to expect from treatment. Now, that's not the case in almost anything else we see. People come with an alteration from their baseline function. And they want to know what it's called, and they know want to know what to do. But they can tell us when they've returned to baseline. They can tell us when their pain is gone, when their cough is cleared. But in ADHD, because it's a because it's a lifelong disorder, most patients don't know what kind of attention they should expect, and it's difficult to communicate that. What we can ask them to expect is symptom improvement. That's the first thing that we should be able to see as a consequence of ADHD medications. This slide is conceptual. The ADHD patient before diagnosis has high symptoms. As we begin to lower those through therapy, reduction of symptoms are most clinically apparent. But when people come to us, it's often with work difficulties, family difficulties, relationship difficulties. They didn't ask us to lower their inattention. They asked us to help them solve persistent problems in their family. And so reducing the functional impairment is why most people came. And it's the phase that we need to move into once we see that we're achieving some reduction of symptoms. And so this describes the therapeutic process. It begins with a focus on reduction of symptoms. Then it turns a corner and moves into ensuring that we're seeing improvements in the things patients actually came to us hoping to improve. We also need to be able to define best attention. What does it mean to have good attention? Some people may assume that the best attention is laser focus that can't be uh, easily dislodged, but that's not the definition of optimal attention. On the left side of the screen, we see under control attention. And this is a typical untreated ADHD patient with unguided attention trying to focus on one thing, but attention naturally wanders very quickly to other things, easily distracted. 
and very inefficient in time management. As we raise the dose of a medication to what would be considered an optimal dose, patients should experience what I would call good control of attention. They can focus as much or as little as they'd like. They can end focus at an appropriate time. They can switch focus when that's needed, and they can choose appropriate targets for their focus. That should be accompanied by a more uh, flexible approach to ex uh, executive tasks and a more organized uh, ability, uh, bo both of uh, a, a sense of uh, internal organization as well as an ability to maintain an external organization. When ADHD medications are taken to a level that's too high, what we see is an unnatural state of over-control. Now, people at this level may describe amazing focus and the ability to focus for a long time on a single thing, but that's not necessarily normal. Patients who are over-controlled may, may describe difficulty withdrawing from focus. One patient said, I can work for three hours on something, but when I pull back and realize what I've done, I was working on the wrong thing. And so the ability to be light on our feet with attention, to pay attention when needed, to end attention when needed, and to modulate attention as needed is the optimal attention we look for. So patients who are stimulus bound have trouble withdrawing their attention. And that may indicate over-control, and we're actually over-medicating uh, and need to uh, reduce a medication. If we're so lucky as to have a patient with good response to medication, we'd like to be able to see improved outcomes. Research so far has been able to show us a connection between ADHD treatment and driving improvements and improvements in diet control and weight control for obese patients in every study that we've looked at it. There's also benefits seen in some but not all studies, and that's what we see in the bars here. 83% of studies on social functioning show improvements in adults when treated for ADHD symptoms. So as we get through more and more complex uh, functional outcomes, though it's harder and harder to show uh, that improving ADHD symptoms in improves some of our functions. So for example, when we look at occupational outcomes, it's more difficult to show functional improvements there. This may be a variety of reasons and we don't need to speculate other than to know that simply medicating people with ADHD does not necessarily or reliably improve uh, occupational outcomes as well as it does some others such as uh, uh, driving behaviors, uh, substance use and so forth. And interestingly, self-esteem is one of the most significantly improved uh, functional outcomes too. And that's very important uh, for our patients. It's hard to translate that into uh, life function, but the improvement self-esteem are uh, substantial and generally follow adequate treatment. So we're now gonna cover the uh, pharmacotherapy of ADHD in adults. There are two classes of medicines that are approved the stimulant medicines, which are the amphetamines and the methylphenidate classes, all extended release, uh, it should be noted, uh, for adults as compared to the immediate release, which are approved in um, children. Uh, the immediate release may be used in adults, but off-label. And then the non-stimulant, which is atomocetine, is the uh, sole approved um, um, non-stimulant with an indication for adults um, with ADHD. So amoxetine is a non-stimulant present throughout the day with a dose range of 40 to 100 milligrams. Dexmethylphenidate extended release has two beads uh, with a duration. It's a methylphenidate compound. The active half of all methylphenidates is the D um, and with an FDA approved dose range of 10 to 40 milligrams. Um, Oros methylphenidate is an osmotic release preparation of methylphenidate, again, with about a 12-hour duration. Dose range of 18 to 72 milligrams a day. Um, then mixed amphetamine uh, salts XR um, is um, an amphetamine-based preparation, um, actually with an approved dose up to 20 milligrams in adults. Uh, the dose in children is higher. Lysdex amphetamine is a prodrug, 
is um, an amino acid lysine bound to uh, D-amphetamine, which is then split in the bloodstream with a duration we've shown actually in PK studies, PKPD studies up to about 14 hours with a dose range of 20 to 70 milligrams. And then the triple beaded mixed amphetamine extended release, which uh, is like the mixed amphetamine salts XR, um, but with a third bead to release, which can have a duration of up to 16 hours with a um, range of 12.5 to 50 milligrams. So how do you decide whether to use a stimulant or a non-stimulant? The pros for stimulants are that they have larger effect sizes and high treatment response, and they're more rapidly acting. The side effects are relatively minor, uh, insomnia, appetite suppression, headache, abdominal pain, and nervousness. Um, the the uh, cons are the potential cardiovascular risk, although adamoxetine carries similar changes in blood pressure and pulse. Um, and you have to be concerned about psychosis, um, the potential uh, tick induction, and for kids, growth uh, delay. And they are controlled substances, so you have to be concerned about misuse and um, potential abuse liability. The non-simulant amoxetine, consistent throughout the day, um, has a smaller effect size. <clears throat> no formal addictive potential has been shown in a, the abuse liability study, so it is not um, a, a controlled substance. Um, there's really no growth, no growth impact for kids, and it has um, been found to not worsen ticks. Um, however, it, it uh, is slower in onset, requires titration, um, and the, um, there is a warning on it because selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor to um, increase suicidality up to the age of 26 with also a bolded warning for a uh, liver dyscrasia that occurs rarely but is basically a liver allergy. You can also commonly see nausea and some, uh, you can also, during the titration process and some fatigue. It is important to monitor treatment response. You really want to titrate the medications up to at least a 30% improvement. I'm going to turn it over to Oren here. Well, we'd like to be able to evaluate in our own patients how effective is a treatment that we prescribe. So at follow-up visits, monitoring treatment response is going to include a narrative. We want to start, of course, with the patient's own perceptions. But symptom score measurement is an evidence-based way of quantifying patients' symptoms and allows us to compare their treatment response to the ones we would typically expect and to tell them whether it's a good response, a very robust response, or possibly a, a response that doesn't meet our expectations that might require adjustments or even a different trial of medication. After we've determined the actual symptom response and any functional improvements that patients might attribute to those symptom improvements, we need to be sure to query tolerability, especially for the most common side effects of our chosen medication, and any difficulty with medical ad uh, medication administration. This rather complicated slide is actually simple. At the bottom is a representation of the data obtained by uh, Butelar. In a study that he did, and I caution you with children, but where he found that the degree of symptom score reduction could predict improvements in functionality, particularly in a particular scale of the, of the uh, life participation scale. In that, he found that symptom improvements up to 35% led to very little functional improvement. Symptoms of 40 to 45% were intermediate, and symptom score reductions over 50% led to highly significant functional improvements in the life participation scales. Above, we see two different follow-up forms on the right-hand side that relate to an initial diagnosis form on the left-hand side. The symptom score obtained at baseline and scored by totaling uh, the, the scores of each symptom as shown on this form are reduced by 60% in each of the two hypothetical follow-up uh, forms. On the left, we see a 60% symptom score reduction where there's actually four inattentive symptoms that remain at a level of often. On the right, we see a different hypothetical where there's only one inattentive symptom that remains at a level of often, and the other inattentive symptoms are now occurring at levels of uh, not at all or just a little. In this example, 
an individual who's having trouble paying attention at work or in conversations or with family or in uh, tasks with children, for example, still has significant inattention. And so while we would be happy at a 60% symptom score reduction and say that it represents a robust response, a patient-centered approach would ask if the symptom score reduction is in the symptoms that a patient most needs us to address. So we can see that we can have what would be considered in a research setting a very robust response, but might not match patient expectations. The combination of the evidence-based evaluation of symptom response and the connection with the patient and the adherence to their own standards for improvement are going to help us determine when we're getting the ideal response to medication. So um, in treating comorbid ADHD and depression, it's important to realize that major depression and dysthymia are the most common uh, group together comorbidity. Um, when comorbidity is present, always treat the most impairing disorder. And if it's severe depression or there's suicidality, you probably want to uh, treat the depression first. If the depression is mild or maybe more chronic, specifically a dysthymia, you might treat the ADHD concurrently with the depression, meaning potentially a um, stimulant and an SSRI um, to treat both conditions. Um, it should be noted that patients with major depression and ADHD are present. They're twice as likely not to have the anti be an antidepressant responder, um, and they're more likely to respond when the ADHD is treated. For the comorbidity of anxiety and ADHD, um, anxiety can exacerbate impairments. Anamoxetine generally is less anxiogenic. It's been shown to have benefits in patients with comorbid anxiety disorders and ADHD. Um, stimulants can also um, exacerbate anxiety, although some of the longer acting smoother release preparations may do that um, less so. Uh, you want to titrate slowly uh, and monitor anxiety, and you can uh, use co occurring uh, co use of uh, SSRIs or SNRIs uh, when both ADHD and comorbid anxiety is present. If you're going to add an SNRI, it's important to uh, monitor, uh, as you are already, blood pressure and pulse because of the potential added noradrenergic effect of an SNRI. How do you choose between stimulants and non-stimulants? It's really based on a patient needs, preferences, and priorities. Stimulants are most commonly prescribed. Um, you really want to look at the low-hanging fruit, which is uh, severe tics or substance use, or potentially comorbid anxiety. There you're going to want to potentially use um, a non-stimulant, specifically atomoxetine. Also, if the, the ADHD is severe because of the larger effect sizes of stimulants, you're going to go there first. So in terms of abuse, misuse, and diversion of short is more commonly present in short-acting stimulants, specifically the immediate release, and the immediate release are not approved for adults. And if you have young adults that are presenting, looking for immediate release mixed amphetamine salts, be concerned because those are the most commonly misused and diverted preparations. We're now going to return to Katie, um, describing the collaborative relationship between her and her doctor. When I was first diagnosed with ADHD, I didn't actually know what I would do about it if I got the diagnosis. I wasn't sure if I was going to have it, and then I did. And I, when I came into the doctor's office, I was like, there's no way I'm going on medication. Um, and my doctor certainly did not force medication either. But what he did do that I so appreciated and was actually probably the first time a medical professional had ever approached talking about medication this way is he stepped to explain what this medication would do, how it would impact my brain if uh, the diagnosis was correct, um, and also what finding the right amount of medicine would be, what that process would look like. And by helping me actually understand what ADHD is and what and how my brain works differently than other people's brains and therefore what a stimulant or other medication would do, it actually helped me be a lot less scared of what does it mean to have medication. Uh, my doctor also explained that, you know, it's my option and if something's not working, it can change it and, um, and really left the decision up to me, which was really important because, like I said, I kind of came in pretty skeptical anyways. Um, but by being able to understand the medication, what it would do, how my brain would react, that was just amazingly helpful. And knowing that he didn't want to over-prescribe medicine too. So how do we take kind of a, 
a ramp up approach to understanding really what is the right dosage and being able to come in and talk about that. Um, my doctor also did explain that with ADHD, a lot of it can be learning different strategies that don't require medication, different learned behaviors. Because I was a little bit older, once getting diagnosed, I kind of knew what did work for me in some ways, but was open to definitely hearing other strategies. But I, having those options just made me feel a lot better. It was really important to me. And as we've continued to figure out what is the right medication, and even just as I get into different stages of growth in my own life of thinking about, do I want to have the family? Or as my um, kind of workload or like working from home looks differently than going to the office and having an hour commute, you know, being able to actually approach this conversation and have somebody who's treating me with respect that and listening to kind of my feedback and how my own environment may be changing has been extremely helpful too. And just being able to openly talk about that. Um, I don't know why I'm normally intimidated by doctors and don't feel like I can question it, but that open approach and even from the beginning kind of laying out options first before even a recommendation was super helpful um, in in my own process. I was starting to notice that I I think I became just a lot more self-aware of my own patterns and when I concentrate or when different motivations, whether it's an emotional motivation or just a, uh, my doctor and I call it the just do itter, <laughs> that, that your just do itter motor doesn't work as well when you have ADHD. And so my just do itter motor of like, hey, I should probably put my clothes away because I want that to happen. Um, you know, starting to realize that kind of that shift in those patterns and what activities were harder and easier to, to still do and at what times of the day. Uh, and we started talking about on and off ramps for when um, you're starting an activity um, and being able to try and realize like what are the different cues that I can send myself to when I might be concentrating into something too hard or not enough and how can I kind of reset the day because really the medication's there to just help me be able to do that but I still needed to change some of my behaviors and the habits that I had built up that were kind of overcompensating for having ADHD and not knowing it um, over time and so that was actually really helpful to be able to discuss with my doctor because it made suddenly this brand new diagnosis approachable and it also helped me understand kind of these swings that when I was first getting used to a medication, I kind of would go like a little bit into like either over concentrating or um, or being not emotional or different aspects of, of the medication. So this is a, this video clip highlights the importance of sharing uh, decision making, the importance of patient related factors, medication related factors and special considerations in the patient. You want to prepare the patient for the magnitude of the effect, the time course of the onset of the potential um, treatment that you've selected uh, when using a non-stimulant. It's critical to highlight that the uh, medication will have two to, two to three weeks before it maximizes the effect every time you adjust the dose. Um, and it's really important to partner in this decision with your patient. And I think... The, the notion of patient preference deserves a nod here too, especially if a patient requests a non-stimulant. Um, when patients request stimulants, a yellow flag goes up in my mind. And when patients request uh, immediate release stimulants, a big red flag waves. Um, but the but the request for a non-stimulant is one that I try uh, I try to honor. If patients understand that there's a a low effect size and a lower chance of a complete response, um, then it's 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 reasonable to proceed. Um, again, people appreciate uh, having their needs uh, met, even if their needs aren't entirely rational or sensible in our algorithms. I think one important factor here is to um, the the take homes I, I would like to leave for people are that. Um, is to get the diagnosis right. If your patient comes in and complaining of ADHD-related symptoms or if they have vague somatic complaints that you can't nail down, um, or if they have a depression or an anxiety disorder that isn't getting better, think about it, whether they have ADHD. Um, and then if they do have ADHD, move into the appropriate treatment phase in terms of the selecting between a stimulant and a non-stimulant, uh, titrating appropriately to symptoms and impairments, um, and because this, this is a disorder that can, can get better and you can make substantial changes in your patients' lives. And I'd like to end, too, on uh, and mirror that. I, I think the gratitude of patients who experience uh, significant change in their ability and their potential uh, is, is, is really heartwarming. Uh, patients like uh, Katie are enthusiastic and articulate, 
but people who are less able to articulate it still, I think, appreciate uh, an enormous difference that we can uh, sometimes make in the enormous potential that opens up for them across the rest of their lives when we identify and treat this appropriately. It's, it's been a particular uh, joy in my own career and the reason that I've uh, specialized entirely in ADHD. Thank you for having me in this discussion of ADHD diagnosis and treatment. It's been a pleasure to uh, present the data uh, to you, and I hope you found it helpful. I want to thank my uh, colleague, Oren, uh, because we've had some stimulating discussion, and the interaction in the discussion has really been critical for trying to get the important points in making the diagnosis and selecting treatment. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash CQC 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Takeda Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated.